Welcome. It's Thursday, November 4th, 2021. You're listening to the Caravan Podcast, the venture of the Herbert and James White Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. I am Russell Berman, director of the Working Group. The Working Group publishes regular commentary in the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy. You can read our work at hoover.org slash caravan. New podcasts appear about twice a month. Please subscribe by going to hoover.org, clicking on publications, and go to podcasts. You can subscribe to any and all of the Hoover podcasts, by the way, including The Grumpy Economist with John Cochran, The Libertarian with Victor Davis Hanson, The Pacific Century with Misha Oslin and John Yu, and Goodfellows with Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Tom Tugendhat, who is speaking with us from London. Mr. Tugendhat served in the British military for a decade, from 2003 to 2013, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, prior to beginning a political career. In 2015, he was elected to Parliament, and since 2017, Tom has served as the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. He's the youngest person ever to be elected to that position. Tom has been an outspoken critic of aspects of Russian and Chinese activities, and those topics can certainly be on the table today, but I requested this conversation because Tom delivered a widely reported speech in Parliament deploring the manner in which the United States withdrew from Afghanistan. I'm eager to learn more about his views on that, on the ramifications for the region, and especially how this figures in the complexities of transatlantic relations. Tom, welcome to the Caravan Podcast. It's an honor to be able to speak with you. Thank you very much. Lovely to be with you, Russell. So first, in your August speech in Parliament on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you paid special attention Uh, attribute to the role of patience, the need for patience to win wars. And you criticize the West in general, you name the United Kingdom, but you surely mean the United States as well, with regard to insufficient patience. Can you expand on that topic, please? If we need patience to win, then our cultural impatience is a kind of strategic vulnerability. Where does this come from? How can we fix it? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think there is a, there is a, a challenge for us. Um, But actually, it's a a challenge that I would argue that democracies are better able to meet than dictatorships, because although, you know, the the, the classic line is you can have a greater strategic outlook if you've got a dictatorship than if you've got a four year mandate or a five year mandate. uh, The reality is you can only truly uh, be certain that a population is working with you if they choose to. uh, And that's where democracies actually end up being strong. And there's a there's too much of an emphasis, I think, uh, for people who who watch conflict of looking at the war as though it's the the operational bit if you like the bit that sees tanks moving or trenches dug or aircraft flying the reality as we all know uh, is that wars are not won on the battlefield they're won in uh, the success of community growth and and changed ideals afterwards you know we won the second world war when the cold war saw European Union and NATO expansion east as far as uh, Poland and the Baltic states. That's when we won the Second World War. And you could argue, if you like, that that's when we won the First World War too. Uh, And that there were two major moments of operational tempo. That's, of course, true, 14 to 18 or 17 to 18 if you're an American and 39 to 45 or 41 to 45 again if you're an American uh, for the Second World War. Um, But those moments of major operational tempo were only part of what I think was the fundamental war, which was the war for liberal democracy in Western Europe. 
Uh, and so I think that that's what I mean by patience. I mean the fact that patience isn't about a single battle or a single operation. It's about changing the way you work with partners and friends around the world. And you know, the greatest uh, example of strategic patience that wins wars, I would argue, uh, is the huge success that we've had uh, in South Korea, something that the US people take too little credit for and, and celebrate uh, too infrequently. You know, yes, of course, there was the Korean War, and many of us were engaged in that, you know, the United States, Turkey, uh, Britain, France, many other UN nations in the first UN engagement were engaged in the conflict element of that battle. But the strategic patience of the United States that turned that from a broken, famine-struck country through a military dictatorship into what it is now, which is one of the world's great democracies, one of the exporters of global culture, um, everything from, you know, Gangnam Style to Squid Games, uh, that, you know, mark uh, a genuine liberation and liberal democracy in, in a part of Asia that wasn't famous for it before. That, that's a real strategic victory. Well, thank you. In your, in your speech, you frame the matter with reference to your terms, great sadness. Uh, you were very blunt with your criticism of the United States. Uh, you refer to the, our commander-in-chief um, discreetly not naming him, but nonetheless clearly faulting him for his decision. Some critics in the U.S. argue that rather than a complete withdrawal from Afghanistan, the U.S. should have maintained a residual force in a few key locations. What would have been your preferred alternative? Well, I think the, the reality was that the U.S., troop contribution, by the way, alongside the UK and others, was sustainable. The US troop contributing forces were two and a half thousand. The rest was made up 700, sorry, 7,500 roughly uh, from other uh, nations, some of them British, about 800, I think 750, 800 British. You know, there were many other troops alongside the US. And while it is, of course, true that um, there had been no particular targeting of US troops since the um, signatory that, uh, with the Taliban, the deal with the Taliban a, a year or so earlier. The reality is that no US troops have been killed in combat for well over 18 months. And actually major combat operations in which uh, the US had been involved had ended several years before that. So the reality was that the US were no longer and hadn't been in combat roles for several years. They were sustaining, they were supporting. I mean, they were absolutely vital, but they weren't in frontline combat roles. So I think the US did have a choice. Uh, it's a choice it chose not to exercise, which I understand. Um, but I do think that the US did have a choice and it's one that it chose not to take. A key component of the withdrawal was the dearth of communication between Washington and our allies. Uh, the UK to be sure, but also the wider NATO community. In your speech, you imply that the UK needs to work more with other allies, Germany, France, Australia, Japan, so as not to be dependent on one country and one leader, that is, to reduce dependence on Washington. Has the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and this insufficient consultation had an impact on discussions of the broader security architecture? I'm thinking about the discussion for a European strategic autonomy or some restructuring of NATO. Well, look, I think every country has seen it differently. Um, I know that our allies in Taiwan have drawn one lesson pretty clearly. Our friends in Estonia have drawn another. Our friends in Japan, friends in Germany 
different lessons again. And and France, well, France will probably come to that, but France for different reasons has drawn other lessons uh, from US actions recently. And I think the reality is that we're all aware that really since uh, George W. Bush, the intention of the US to not be a global policeman or be quite as dominant in global affairs has been something that I think all sides have been trying. Um, I mean, various things have prevented former presidents of achieve, from achieving that. Bill Clinton was prevented by the, by the collapse of Yugoslavia. Um, George W. Bush was prevented by uh, 9-11 and various other people have been prevented by a whole series of, uh, of other different incidents that have occurred, but certainly since President Obama and even more so since President Trump, um, US commitment to, to, to its positions abroad has been less certain um, to, to some eyes. Um, I happen to be a believer that the US will always do the right thing, as Churchill put it, after it's tried everything else. Um, but, the, um, but the reality is that many countries were left nervous after uh, President Trump's threat to withdraw from NATO and various things like that. And certainly this um, made a lot of people think again about it. Now, I don't think that there really is a replaceable US uh, out there in the, in, in, you know, in, the, in, in, the, in the wilds waiting to be brought in. But what I do think is that um, countries like the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Japan, and indeed many others do have a responsibility to shoulder more of the burden uh, for global security uh, and to lessen the burden on the United States. And some of that is just natural part of burden sharing. And some of it is if we want to have a clear view, if we want our voice to be heard, firmly, then we need to make sure that we're putting up the commitment to make it worth listening to us. And I think uh, too often we've allowed the US the excuse that, frankly, um, it's too easy not to listen. And sometimes it comes back to bite us. The transatlantic tensions caused by the Afghanistan withdrawal were exacerbated by the announcement of AUKUS, the partnership of Australia, the UK, and the US around nuclear submarines. Uh, AUKUS was viewed as a blow by France. Uh, French Foreign Minister Le Drian even called it a stab in the back, and the French ambassador to Washington was briefly recalled to Paris. But the UK is a party to AUKUS, uh, seemingly drawing back toward the United States despite the non-consultation regarding Afghanistan withdrawal. So to you, as chair of Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, what's the net outcome of these extraordinary events, Afghanistan and AUKUS, regarding their impact on the Atlantic Alliance? Well, I mean, I, I think we've pretty covered Afghanistan. I think it's been, I think it's been a difficult moment. But I think, I think AUKUS is different. AUKUS is different because it really hit that part of French society that was particularly pro-American. It hit that part of French society that was particularly keen to increase its uh, defense involvement and to play its part in not just being present, but facing down some of the challenges in the Pacific. Now, that's like every society, that's not universal, right? I mean, there are people in France who are more pro, more anti-American. There are people who are more pro, more anti-European, more pro, more anti-China or more pro, more anti-military. But the element that had committed to the Australian submarine deal was the bit that was pro-American, pro-military and pro-Pacific. So when they 
got what they felt was a smack in the face. There was nobody else there to temper the mood. And I think that's what you saw coming out of France and that's what you still see coming out of France, which is that there isn't, you know, what you'd normally have is you'd normally have another element of the society saying, oh, well, it's not that bad. And by the way, here's the mitigating factors. You're not seeing that here for the very simple reason that the bit that's been hit is the bit that's normally in favor of, it would be the bit that was normally mitigating. So I think that the, I think that the AUKUS impact has actually been pretty important and you can see that this was mishandled by the simple fact that President Biden has spent much of the last, well, as far as I can tell, the last few weeks, possibly even the last couple of months, uh, looking to make up with President Macron in different ways uh, and seeing ways in which to uh, to bring the French on board. It's also true that although this deal is currently, let's be honest, a deal between Australia and the United States over nuclear propulsion for submarines, and the UK may or may not get some look in depending on what happens. The reality is we need not just a deal on nuclear propulsion. The real questions over the coming 10, 20, 30 years are going to be on quantum computing and artificial intelligence. And there we need to be working with Japan and Germany, France and Estonia, uh, amongst others, um, and not just focusing on, on a narrow group of countries because this is a global competition. And it's not just big players who are going to take part. Okay, so you've uh, anticipated the move to the bigger picture. Uh, tensions between the US and Europe, um, whether around Afghanistan or AUKUS, uh, can only benefit our adversaries, China and Russia. Uh, what are your expectations for transatlantic cooperation in this era of great power competition? What are the key issues that need addressing? Well, okay. I mean, it, it's certainly clear that uh, our adversaries uh, are exploiting this. I mean, within within days uh, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Chinese state newspapers were running stories about, you know, to, to point out to the Taiwanese that this is the country that they've made their, you know, they've made their bet on. Um, and uh, and if after twenty years, two trillion dollars, two and a half thousand lives the US will walk out like a thief in the night. You know, what does it mean for Taiwan? Um, now, I happen to believe that that's not a valid comparison for a whole series of different reasons, um, but it's still one that the Chinese state was willing to try to use. So I do think it, I do think it's, uh, it feeds into it. And I think AUKUS will also feed into it a bit because countries will look at the way that France has been treated and France has had a nuclear deal of various kinds with the United States for many, many years, as you know. Um, and they will see that if that's how old friends are treated, what does it mean for what does it mean for newer states? Um, so I, I, I do think these things matter. I'd be cautious about overstating it though, because the, the choice is pretty binary. The choice is between severe authoritarianism from Beijing or a form of liberal trade economic partnership from Washington. And most countries will very much choose the latter if they can. The only reason they'll choose the former is if they don't have the choice. Um, and so it's our job, I think, to make sure that they do have that choice. Before concluding, I want to return to a couple of um, issues related to the main topic of the podcast, the Middle East and the Islamic world. 
Um, I'd be eager to hear your perspective on, on these two issues. The First, the Trump administration pursued the so-called Abraham Accords, the development of direct relations between Israel and a number of Arab states as a way to move the region forward. Do you see this as a promising route? And the other is uh, the JCPOA, the so-called Iran deal. What are your estimations for the prospects of uh, negotiations? I think the Abraham Accords have been underappreciated. I think they're a pretty extraordinary success. Now, let's see how long, you know, how they deepen and, 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 and what they lead to. But I think they are a pretty extraordinary success. Um, they're not solely a U.S. success, let's be honest. They're really an Iranian success in the sense that the only reason they're happening is because Tehran has been so belligerent that it's forced its, uh, all those who are rival to it into one camp. That's a remarkable success by um, uh, Tehran that has managed to unify its enemies. Um, but the truth is the U.S. did midwife those deals. And, and we now have a different Middle East to the one, you know, four or five years ago that we started with. Uh, that's not a that's not nothing. It still leaves many questions to answer, and I certainly shouldn't wouldn't predict that you know in any way that's the final status. It, this is, but it is certainly better than it was. And I think that's where we come on to the JCPOA. I mean, the reality is the JCPOA is dead, um, and the only question is whether something else similar, perhaps, but something else can be born again. Um, and I have to say, I think that's unlikely. I think it's unlikely for several reasons. One, President Biden isn't looking particularly solid. And if you're looking at him from Tehran and you're looking at a, a three-year agreement, which will probably take two years to negotiate, you're going to get to the midterms next year. I mean, if you're looking at this from Tehran, you're going to look at the midterms next year and think it's likely that he won't carry the House and the Senate. And then you'll be looking at two years further on and wondering whether or not President Trump will be back or somebody else. Um, so I think it's I think it's unlikely that the interest is going to be there from Tehran, frankly. And secondly, I think it's I don't I don't really see the strong interest from the United States either. Um, the reality is that the the Raisi government that has just come in, you know, brings with it. I mean, one advantage is it brings with it the unity that they're all of the same cloth now. There's no pretense, really, that there's an IRGC administration and then, you know, uh, and a civilian administration. They're all the same administration now. So I, I find it very difficult to imagine that this um, grouping is going to find a way through that allows them um, to come to any form of real agreement with the United States. Uh, and nor do I think it's likely that the United States is going to be particularly looking for any agreement. Tom, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, thank you for your time and your insights. Transatlantic conversations are always important, but especially now. To our listeners, I recommend you're listening to Tom's speech, easily found on YouTube. Just search for Tom Tugendhat Parliament Speech. You can follow Hoover's Working Group on the Middle East at hoover.org caravan. The Hoover Institution is on Twitter at hooverinst, I-N-S-T. And I'm Russell Berman on Twitter at Russell Berman SF. Please listen to the Caravan podcast later this month when my Caravan colleague Cole Bunzel will return. I'll be back next month, and I hope you'll be listening in. Tom, thank you again. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.